We interviewed Oz Guinness for Jesus the Game Changer Season 2 in Washington, D.C. Oz is a renowned author and social commentator, and he has written over 30 books. He spoke to us about his earliest memories of growing up in China at the end of the Second World War, his parents' work in China as missionaries, and his insights into Christianity in America today. So Oz, tell us about your earliest memories of being in China. Well, I was born in North China during World War II. So my memories of that are extremely hazy. And much of it comes from my parents' stories, which I heard afterwards. Um, I had two brothers, the three of us. My grandfather had founded the hospital. And my mother, who was a surgeon, was one of the doctors there. And we were caught in a terrible famine. So we had the Japanese army on one side who had killed 17 million in their invasion. And then we had the communist army north of us and the nationalist army on the other side. And then there was a famine, locusts. Chiang Kai-shek could have sent food, but he didn't because he wanted it for his own troops. And in three months, five million died, including my two brothers and when I nearly died, my mother nearly died. When we joined the refugees on the road looking for food and so on, there were 10 million on the road. And there was cannibalism, people selling their children for an evening meal, you know, all sorts of horrendous things. So it was the end of that were my first memories of life. Wow. Why were your parents there? Your, your mum was working as a surgeon. They went as medical missionaries? Yes, my great-grandfather was a friend of Hudson Taylor's and his oldest daughter married Hudson Taylor's son. So Mrs. Howard Taylor, who wrote all the books, her maiden name is Geraldine Guinness. My grandfather, her younger brother, went at the end of the 19th century, so he survived the Boxer Riots, and incredible stories connected with that. And then my parents were both born in China, and after education back in Britain, they went out. And as I said, my mother, she was the surgeon and running the hospital. So your mother was working as a surgeon, but obviously your family was there as missionaries to bring the message of Jesus. Oh, absolutely. My dad, in his 90th year, long after they'd left China, went back. He met people he'd led to Christ 50 years earlier. And of course, the explosion of the church was extraordinary. So. When my parents left in the mid-50s, and they were some of the last six Westerners there, there were probably three quarters of one million. Wow. And now, only the Lord knows, 80 to 100, maybe more than that, million Christians in China. I remember reading a story where you were sent off to boarding school as a very young child, I guess, and your dad left something to remind you. What was that? Well, we moved from Kaifeng, which I just described, down to Nanjing which had just suffered the terrible rape of Nanking. And uh, there were no local schools, so I had to go by plane to Shanghai to school. And uh, first time away from my home, my parents gave me, my father gave me, he was an artist, two little smooth stones. One of them had his life motto, found faithful, and the other had my mother's life motto, please him. And I had one in each of the pockets of my shorts. Was that, was that something that was um, 
like deeply encouraging and moving. Yeah, you sort of, I was homesick for one thing, but you know, trying to live the family way and you'd feel it in your pocket and there it was. What was the legacy of Hudson Taylor at that time in China for you, your family? Well, you know, there are missionaries and missionaries and many missionaries have been accused of colonialism and all that sort of stuff. But Hudson Taylor with his idea of the China inland mission, in other words, they didn't sit in the treaty ports like Shanghai. They went inland and they learned the local dialects and they wore Chinese clothes and they became Chinese to reach the Chinese. That was the tradition in which my parents and grandparents went out and I'm very grateful. They really served the Chinese and left a tremendous heritage in terms of medicine, the hospital my grandfather founded is now a huge uh, military medical hospital. But you can see how many of the top colleges in China were founded by Christian missionaries. What Hudson Taylor did at the time was actually quite different because there were other missionaries in China at the time. Um, why do you think his approach was so different? Well, I think he modeled it on the incarnation. To reach us as human beings, our Lord becomes one of us. And obviously that's the pattern. Paul, all things to all people, a Jew to the Jews, Gentile to the Gentiles, Chinese to the Chinese. You know, it's very natural for evangelicals to model themselves on Jesus and on Paul's principles and really contextualize the gospel and make it one with whatever the culture is. Mission has often been sort of linked to colonialism and it's actually been often described as just colonialism. What is the difference? Well, those who can be accused of that sort of supported the status quo of whatever the empire was. And that wasn't true in China. My, the, the worst of British imperialism in China was the Opium War. My grandfather's sister wagged her finger in the face of Queen Victoria and actually had the courage to say it was a national disgrace and a sin. And her older brother was one of those who fought for justice in the Belgian Congo. And of all the colonies, Belgium's was by far the worst. And our family was in the forefront. My, my great-grandfather was a friend of Theodor Herzl you know, who's the founder of Zionism and eventually behind the state of Israel. So our family has a strong passion for justice. I mean, it's accused of colonialism because that was the way it often entered, didn't it? It sort of, in, in many places, it, it came with uh, the ships from colonial nations, or nations rather, building a colonial Yeah, but you've empire. got to say that the, often the business people, the colonists went first the soldiers and business people, and then Christians seized the opportunity. So the best example is William Wilberforce. In other words, the East India Company had a dreadful record of rape and plunder in India. And the man who led the reform of the East India Company and so on was William Wilberforce and Edmund Burke and people like this. And he sent in missionaries who stood, William Carey and many others, for justice along with the gospel. So the, the accusation of colonialism is often a, 
a, a fairly inaccurate caricature. Oh, quite inaccurate. And there's, there's studies now, a scholar called Robert Woodbury, who's shown that actually wherever democracy is really thriving with education and other things, it's where evangelical missions sowed the seeds and planted the roots. Your family was one of the last to leave China. What do you think for you, your family, and the mission, missionary leaders at the time thought was going to happen? They didn't know. But I remember when they came out, they went round on what was then called deputation. They'd go to meetings and people would come up to my dad because I was with him. And they'd say, oh, Henry, so sad that your work has been wasted. And he'd say, no, no, we planted the seed. God is sovereign, we'll see what happens. But as I said, when he went back in his 90th year, this is 50 years later, where we lived in North Central China, Henan, is the epicenter of the fastest growth of the church, the whole church, in 2,000 years. And my dad came back, you know the Latin version of Simeon's prayer, Nunc Dimittis, Lord let your servant depart in peace. My dad was like that. He was just so happy. My mother had already gone to heaven. He was just ready to go. The fruit of what they'd done 50 years earlier was quite phenomenal. It's, it's hard to kind of, it's, it's hard to get a concept of what it must have been like for your dad to walk around and see that fruit. That's right. Where we lived at the end, I mean, Nanking is printing and distributing more Bibles, I think, than anywhere else in the world. So again, they were incredibly encouraged. And I go back to China every two or three years now, and it's always encouraging to meet people who know how much they owe to the sacrifice of missionaries earlier. So what do you put that growth under persecution down to? Truly to the Holy Spirit, but also the incredible courage of people under persecution. Now I remember as a small boy when I was six or seven, you know, the sermon started to get interminably long. And I said to my dad, you know, what's happening? This is really boring. He said, well, listen, they know persecution's coming. So they're laying down all the teaching and the depth and the fellowship that they can possibly have. So they're ready when it comes. Wow. When you go back now, what do you see in the church in China? Well, I've mainly been back to universities and those sort of circles, or several times to the Chinese Academy of the Social Sciences. So I've seen China at a very different level. I had lunch with the son of Mao Zedong's Keeper of the Antiquities and things like this. I remember one time at one of the Chinese Academy, the question of the day, this is 10 years ago, it'd be different today. Which faith would replace Marxism in China? In other words, as they put it quite candidly, the party's in power, the ideology is hollow, and the word vacuum was repeated all day. And they, they ran through the options. Would it be nationalism? Would it be materialism? Would it be Confucianism? Would it be Buddhism? And they went through the pros and cons of each. And the last one was, in 20 years' time, it's conceivable, would it be the Christian faith would be the majority of faith in China? Now, of course, What's happening now, Xi Jinping and the centralized government and the persecution and things like the social credit system, things are as bad for the Christians as they were back under Mao Zedong. So it's a very tough situation. And in that, do you see the church uh, still flourishing or struggling? 
Well, it's still flourishing with tremendous courage. Yeah. Um, but it remains to be seen how successful she will be. It's been said that in the last hundred years, it, there's been more persecution than before. Do you see evidence of that across the globe? Oh, absolutely. Persecution's mounting. And wherever people are persecuted, not just Christians, say the Baha'i in Iran, the Uyghurs in China, and so on, wherever people are persecuted, Christians are persecuted too. So all the studies show that the Christian faith is the most persecuted faith on the earth today. Do you put that down to anything in particular? Not really. I mean, in China, it's quite specific. They know that they have to stamp out every source of authority that's a potential rival to the party. So it might be Falun Gong, yep. which aren't really a huge rival, but certainly the Muslims in Xinjiang and the Christians right throughout China. And so it, it's the very fact that we recognize Jesus is Lord. So Xi Jinping, the Communist Party, any more than Augustus Caesar, will never be Lord. That's the threat. What do you see developing in Western countries like the United States of America? Is there possibility that would be more persecution there? We're seeing the entire Western world in decline. And even here in America, which is the world's lead society, which has been incredibly shaped by the gospel and by the Reformation and the scriptures, you see a French Revolution style reaction to the faith. In other words, America, intriguingly, the American Revolution goes back largely to the Bible through the Reformation. Whereas most of Europe, especially Southern Europe, was shaped by the Catholic Church, which didn't go back to the Bible. America does, but what you're seeing currently, the deepest source of the division in America today is those who understand America in ways that go back to the American Revolution, which was largely biblical, and those who understand America and freedom in ways that go back to the French Revolution, which was incredibly hostile to all religions, specifically to the church. As, as there's a reaction to the church, in what ways do you think uh, opposition and persecution may come on the church? Well, here there's only discrimination. Although you've got to say something like, say, the sexual revolution. And the architects of the sexual revolution go right back through Wilhelm Reich to the Marquis de Sade and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in other words, the French ideas. And if you read them, for instance, Wilhelm Reich, he says they have to overcome two enemies to win. One, parents, and that's why you have sex education three and four, and two, the church. And so just as at the time of the French Revolution, you know, the Virgin Mary and all sorts of other things were dethroned and the goddess of reason was put in the pantheon, dressed up as, actually, a prostitute dressed up as the goddess of reason. So you can see today an explicit hostility to the Christian faith in progressive secular left-wing circles. If you go back to the start of America, the Mayflower, those who first settled here, what, what was their motivation? Well, there were many, but normally they said there were two. They came for religious liberty 
and civil liberty. Now, had obviously different families had different motivations, but those were the two repeatedly said. The important point, though, is to see that the roots of America, you know, many Americans, if you ask them, where does it come from? It used to be said it was the ancient liberties of the English, Magna Carta, habeas corpus, that sort of stuff. But that today would be dismissed as white privilege. Most Americans today would say it goes back to Athens, democracy, but that's absolute rubbish. It goes back not to Athens, not to Jerusalem, but to Mount Sinai. You take something like the American Constitution that is literally rooted in covenant. If you read the Torah, particularly Exodus, you see there was freely chosen consent. That's the origin of consent of the governed. There was the reciprocal responsibility of all for all, all for one, one for all, things like that, which go back to Exodus. So the Mayflower Compact was a covenant. John Winthrop's sermon on the Arbella was a covenant. John Adams, the second president, actually says that the Constitution of Massachusetts is a covenant. The American Constitution is a nationalized, somewhat secularized form of Hebrew covenant. America owes everything to its distinctive view of freedom to the Reformation and the Reformation's rediscovery of the Bible. Would Americans be surprised that the, the Constitution and democracy here was somewhat of an experiment? No. George Washington called it the great experiment. In other words, freedom has never, ever lasted. So the American idea, which you have pretty commonly, that you could create a free society that could last forever, that's incredibly daring. So it was an experiment. Its experiments, of course, are open-ended. The point is today, it is history's longest running tutorial in the art of political freedom, and it's failing today because of a shift from the American roots to the French roots, and they're quite different and utterly disastrous. Now, of course, England herself, Britain at large, and Canada, Australia, and of course, much of Europe, is already much closer to the French style of freedom. So the tragedy is this is the one country that was distinctively shaped by the Old Testament and it's abandoning it. Sometimes deliberately, often just out of neglect. The, the church in America has had a huge influence in the area of what we call mission, taking the message of Jesus. Where has that been unhelpful? Well, any country that carries the gospel tends to take its own culture along with the gospel. Kipling's famous line, what knows he of England who only England knows? In other words, we think everything we do as English is obvious. We don't realize how much of it's not Christian, it's English. And the same is true of Americans. And so they've confused those things. I'm sure Canadians, Australians, and many others have done the same thing. And undoubtedly Americans have. Now, of course, that's not the real trouble because Americans have been incredibly generous, incredibly passionate in bringing the gospel, medicine, education, all sorts of good things. The trouble is today, they're still known as, quote, a Christian country. And yet the way America's living is an appalling example to the world, whether it's their foreign policy or the lives of 
individual Americans. They're no longer powerful witnesses to the gospel. So we reflected on, say, some of the ways they're unhelpful. So what are the ways that the American, what are the ways that America has taken the gospel to the world that's been incredibly, positively influential? Americans are incredibly, I'm not American, I'm an outsider here, but they're generous people. I mean, giving money. You, you just see what Americans have given for the poor, for world relief, let alone carrying missions. They are probably the, well, by far the most generous nation in all human history, and that grows out of the church's heart. When you're, when, for those of us living in Western nations, and we see the shift that you're talking about, what's the wise way to respond? Well, we've both got to communicate better, and that entails a recovery of persuasion, the old term apologetics. So many Christians, when they don't know what to do, they just go silent, or they just talk louder and faster, as if people will understand, which is really counterproductive. So we need to recover persuasion and know how to speak to people wherever they are, hostile, opposed, indifferent, or whatever. But at the same time, we've got to go back to the roots of a Christ-centered way of living. In other words, the church itself is the problem. Not in the English-speaking world at large, but take America. The scandal of the American church. This is the one country in the West where Christians are a huge majority and thoroughly uninfluential culturally. You take, say, groups that we admire, like the Jewish people in America. They're 2% of America, and yet they punch well above their weight, intellectually, financially, Hollywood, and so on. All power to them. Whereas we are a huge majority in this country, and we have almost no cultural influence. In other words, we are not salty and light-bearing. There has to be renewal and reformation in the church itself. And that's true in England, and it's true in Scotland. It's true, I'm sure, in Australia and Canada and the rest of the English-speaking world. The problem is us. If you were to give a prescription for change, what would it be? <laughs> I wouldn't do that, but, <laughs> but take, say, the call to Abraham. It's negative, leave. At the heart of the gospel and the call of Abraham right through to Jesus is a break with culture. The trouble with the American church, it's so Americanized, it's become part of the culture. It is not distinctive in any decisive way. So we've got to have that element too, looking how the world, modernity, consumerism, and all sorts of things like that have really shaped America more than the gospel. Now then, if we break with the world in a very decisive way, we've got to re-explore some of the meaning of the simple truths of the gospel. You know, I'm well known for one of them, I think is fundamentally important, calling. Because it lies at the heart of purpose and dynamism and engagement. What drives you out to engage the world? It's a sense of calling. And people who re-explore that notion, they get moving. But we've got to look at that. Now, I would say we've got to do this for the future. The entire West is in trouble. Not only that, the whole world's in trouble. So you raise the simple question, are we going to create societies that do justice to human dignity, to freedom, things like this? 
The only answers are in the Scripture. So we who follow Jesus have got to demonstrate those by exploring them ourselves in our communities and then arguing for these things out in the wider world. In other words, not just religious freedom because we're being persecuted. No, showing how the gospel is good news for humanity. Oz, give us your reflection between China that you've had a lot of experience with where they've faced and are facing persecution in America where the church seems to be failing because almost it's giving into the culture. I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy there. You can see two responses in the West to the Christian faith, bred by history. What I call the Catholic response, where you had oppressive churches and so on, we don't want God. Think of the French Revolution. We want to strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. We don't want God. But then you've got what I call the Protestant response. We don't need God. So much of modernity grew out of the Northern European countries with capitalism, technology, and these various things. And so we're living so well, why do we need God? And that double response means that people are rejecting the faith. Now that, that leads also to a mounting discrimination. But we don't have real persecution here, certainly nothing, you know, like our brothers and sisters have in China. This series is looking at the church getting to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Geographically, the church is now at the ends of the earth. So what does the word, what does the phrase to the ends of the earth mean to you now? Part of the call of Abraham was that promise that he would be a blessing to the earth and we're now seeing in the global era. In other words, in the global era, human interconnectedness has reached truly global levels. So it's possible for anyone. You know, when my grandfather went to China, it would take six weeks or so to get there. You know, I remember as a boy going by ship, it would take the best part of three weeks to get there. And then later on, you just fly. Um, so the ends of the earth now, any of us can reach them if we have the money in 24 hours. So this is terrific. But the challenge is, once we reach them, are we really bringing the whole gospel in a way that is salty and light-bearing, that is changing the cultures we reach? And that's the challenge, because we're not making the impact in the West that we should be. At the moment, modernity has proved stronger than the Western church. And that's an insult to the gospel. And this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. In your life and experience, what does the phrase Jesus the Game Changer mean for you? Well, I presume by that it's meant that he is Lord and where people follow his Lordship, it changes everything in their lives and then wider in the culture. But I would put it slightly differently because, you know, our Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli once said that the Christian faith is Judaism for the multitudes. We've got to recognize that many of the most profound ideas of the gospel are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In other words, we can't just, some Christians here in America, so centered on Jesus. You even had an evangelical pastor say, we've got to unhitch the Old Testament. And that is really stupid. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Magna Carta of humanity is the declaration in Genesis that humans are created in the image of God. 
You have freedom rooted in Exodus. You have views of justice. We've got to ransack the whole of the scripture, fulfilled, of course, in our Lord. But not just think of Jesus alone, as so many evangelicals doing, but Jesus, our Lord, as the fulfillment of the whole of scripture and these great foundational truths which make the gospel truly the best news ever. Spoon.